0: No, there we go. That's better. It's good to see everybody. It's good to be back. It's It was fun to visit Wimbledon, but there's no place like Texas. I wanted to say at one point, does anybody here speak Texan? <laughs> we tried to get them to make iced tea, and you would have thought we asked to make a nuclear bomb. <laughs> they have more kinds of tea than India, and they won't make iced tea. But it's good to be back, and it's good to tell the story of Christianity when it was strong, when it was winning, when it was changing the world. In so many ways, we want this to happen again. People say, let's pray for revival. Well, the reason we say that is because of what the history we're talking about today did. So by way of quick review, let's go all the way back to 1648. Europe is devastated. They have just completed the Thirty Years' War and basically didn't move the border one inch. It was a devastating war between Protestants in the north and Catholics in the south, and between the Holy Roman Emperor, which was, he was a German, um, Catholic in the south, and then individual Protestant states, including Sweden and in the north. And despite killing about half of the population of Europe, they didn't really resolve the matter. And so Christianity really was at a low point. It had led us to the battlefield to literally slaughter fellow Christians. And there was this soul-searching moment when Europe decides, uh, we've got to do something different. Now, one branch of Christians that came out of this Thirty Years' War in 1648 said that we should be different than we were in the Thirty Years' War. We should be more like Christ. Going to church should be more than just being baptized when we're little and saying the Lord's Prayer. It, it should be something, like Steve said, that transforms us. So this was the birth following the 30 years war of the Pietist movement in first Germany and then it'll spread throughout the mainland Europe. We've talked about this. This was a group that really became focused on everybody, not just the pastors or the clergy, everybody learning the Bible, everybody living their life as Christians, not just Sunday, but the rest of the six days. They began to pioneer things like Sunday schools, like having lunches together. What we're doing today is a very pietist kind of thing. The pietists also believed that we should do all the good that we could in this world. We should build hospitals and schools and orphanages. Uh, We should impact our community. It's not just the state's responsibility. It's every follower of Jesus Christ. So these pietists were amazing. Now, they didn't want to replace the state church. And first in Germany and then later in England, remember, the church is part of the government. Ministers are government employees. And so part of the responsibility of a minister is to support the government above all things. So these various pietist movements that develop in Protestant, and I should say that Protestant, uh, Northern Europe, um, primarily Germany, want to help their church get better. They don't really care about politics. They just want the people to have this burning flame inside of them. Well, this pietist movement will spread both East and West, and it affected a young man we met by the name of John Wesley. Everybody remembers him. He grows up in England. His father was an Anglican priest. And we have to be careful here as I throw these names around, but everybody's clear on Anglican, right? It's a fancy way of saying English, because the English need things fancy, as I discovered, right? Everything is has got to be just so in England. So when I talk about Anglican, I'm talking about the Church of England, the old C of E, baby. And it is a hallmark, a pillar of the British government. So Wesley's father is an Anglican priest. Wesley grows up at basically a parsonage. He goes off to Oxford. He trains to be a minister. He is incredibly uh, studious, incredibly uh, driven to be holy. I think intellectually he's aware of some of the, the pietist movements, but he's still very much an Anglican, which means everything important in the church happens on Sunday. Everything important probably has a liturgy surrounding it. And then, where does Wesley go as a young missionary? Where is he sent? Remember? America, the wild frontier of Georgia which was still new territory. He was going to convert, in his language, the heathens. I wish we could still use that word today. It's politically incorrect, but heathens. I was called a heathen until I think it was 18 in my family. But he went to convert the Native Americans, the heathens. And along the way, it's a rough ride, and there's, there was a... a strike at the airport in Heathrow when we flew out. They cut the airport workers' salaries 10% for COVID because air travel was down. And since then, they've given the 10% back to management, but not the workers. Now, I don't know what they thought was going to happen, but I lived what happened. It took us four hours to get through security because they just didn't have any employees working. Oh, my gosh. So I felt like Wesley trying to get back to America. Just let me in the country. I'll never leave again. But it took Wesley, uh, what was it, three months uh, to get over from England to Georgia. It was a rough ride. There was a bad storm, remember? And during that ride, he meets a group of Germans. Uh, We call them Moravians today. These were German pietists. And Wesley was shocked. Changed by the faith that these people had in a, what Wesley thought was a life-threatening situation. So Wesley will go to Georgia, stay for a number of years. It's an unmitigated disaster. He also had met, remember, a young lady on the ship. There were talks of marriage. It didn't happen out. She met somebody else. Wesley got mad. Wesley refused them communion. Ended up in a lawsuit. It was bad. So Wesley goes back to England, heartbroken, uh, sees himself as a failure. Despite his education, he has not advanced the kingdom of God or the Church of England one inch. Out of friendship, some of his friends say, you look miserable, you're depressed, you haven't left the house. We're going to take you to a meeting tonight, something to cheer you up. And it just happened to be at Aldersgate, where another group of these German pietists we're holding a a service now this was sort of their specialty right things just don't happen at church they can happen in other places they can happen in fellowship halls they can happen happen in outside in fields so wesley goes and he hears them reading the preface to martin luther's uh well martin luther's preface to the book of romans and it happens wesley's heart is strangely warmed That fire that he's been looking for, that certainty, that hope, it happens. And Wesley is is just shocked. I mean, again, he's Oxford educated, he's legacy Anglican, and yet here amongst these foreigners, he has found Jesus. He knows him as his personal savior. So Wesley really becomes an ardent supporter of this pietist movement for the English people. Now he doesn't take everything the Germans did and just copy it. He he knows his people and so he models a lot. He actually learns German at this time so he can learn to speak in the native tongue in these Moravians. But there are other Englishmen, other Anglican priests that are being influenced by these Moravians as well. One that we talked about was this guy known as Lovely Locks. Look at that hair. It's got to be a wig, don't you think? Okay. How early in the morning did he have to get up? Where's my curling iron? I, I can't get... It's like Princess Leia good. I just... I love it. But this is George Whitfield. He was doing what these pietists call for. He was saying, Everybody should know Jesus. Everybody should be changed. The message of Jesus is not stoic, studied, academic. It's... Life-saving. It's it's a life preserver. So George Whitfield, where was he preaching? What what halls did he go to? You remember? He was outside. Open air, in parks, uh, whatever spaces he could get. He was talking to coal miners. Now remember, England is going through the Industrial Revolution, which is changing a lot in terms of, well, just uh, society, uh, industry, economics. And there was this sort of upcoming uh, economic force, uh, mine workers. Uh, today we think though they would be the lowest of the low. But really, in the beginning of the Industrial Revolution, they were uh, farming class that were being elevated. Uh, but Whitfield reaches out to everybody. Um, drunks that just fell out of the tavern, uh, to slaves, uh, everybody. And he has this huge following, again, outside of the church. But he is still technically an anglican priest he's still a part of the government he tells uh wesley i am going to america and i need somebody i can trust to take care of these flocks that i've been developing here in england and i think you're the man And so really, these two great leaders meet for a short amount of time, and then they'll part ways. Whitfield will go to America. And even though he doesn't bring pietism to America all by himself, it already had been there, right? The Germans, had they brought pietism to America? Yes, I mean they were here when Wesley got here. So, for the German-speaking uh, Americans, which used to be a lot more, uh, Pietism was happening. But for the, the sort of the Pilgrims, the East Coast, New England, that kind of stuff, it still hadn't quite penetrated. That will all change with this guy, George Whitfield. He is was um, one of the most influential speakers of his day. So I want to show you a quick video clip uh, about what America was like. Hold it for, for one second. Why is the United States not Canada? Yeah, but uh, you know, the Canadians are nice, but they're weird. I mean, really, compared to America, all that we've done, they still love the queen in Canada. They still love their tea. What what happened uh, that, that so made a cultural break uh, between... Because we are virtually... We are the same people, right? We just... We're, we're different. I'm going to argue it's because of this guy. Now, understand, he is English. He's a clergyman. He's part of the Church of England. But what he's going to start, what he's going to light in America, is not only going to lead to the revolution, but it's going to lead really to the soul of this nation. When we're at our best, it's echoing some of the sermons that this Englishman who knew Wesley brought to America. So, let's, let's take a look at the video. In the early
1: 1700s, worshipers of all denominations worried that religious piety was eroding in the colonies.
2: By the early 18th century, uh... religion has really fallen off in new england uh... the congregations are largely female the churches are half empty it's no longer the kind of place that we associate with puritanism and you begin to get
1: these movements several religious revivals swept through the colonies in the seventeen thirties and seventeen forties known as the great awakening this religious fire was sparked in part by traveling ministers from england what's beginning
2: to happen is that you begin to get a few preachers who who are preaching in a much more emotional style and there are also these people who come in from europe george whitefield is one she's calling him who, whitefield uh, it's travel but... throughout the colonies and and preach in this very emotional
1: style and suddenly People are very interested in religion. Whitefield delivered his powerful sermons outdoors to thousands of listeners.
2: It becomes a kind of mass movement in various locations. And you get not only George Whitefield, but then American ministers, some of them become what they call itinerants, that is, they travel around. And so they start holding their meetings out in open fields. And, and the effect is really amazing. But now people are out in these fields where everyone is jostling together and there's no hierarchy and everybody is equally important.
1: Colonial ministers like Jonathan Edwards soon followed in Whitefield's footsteps. One sermon called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God implored colonists to repent and threatened them with horrifying depictions of hell. Other ministers encouraged colonists to break away from the past and begin again in the eyes of God. These Great Awakening sermons appealed most to those who were struggling. Sons denied an inheritance, women who didn't have equal rights, and the poor. Ministers of established churches accused these new evangelizers of sowing disrespect and disorder. The
2: so-called old lights, the people who wanted to stay with the traditional ways, and the new lights, the people who were uh, in favor of the awakening, would split and the new lights often would go out and build their own separate
1: church with their own congregation. Different religious sects sprouted in the American colonies including the Baptist, Methodist, and Presbyterian churches. The revivals of the Great Awakening weakened the hold of older Puritan denominations and gave America more religious diversity than ever before.
0: So there's a lot going on. I thought that clip did it did it well to condense it. A lot of things we think about our nation that were not necessarily true at an early point in time. At the beginning of the 1700s, we were not a religious nation. I mean, did you hear that? The old Puritan churches were, like she said, half empty and full of ladies. It's uh, sort of universally true. So this notion that, you know, the pilgrims continued their Christianity just unabated was really not true. We had become very cynical, very materialistic, uh, somewhat living on the frontier had been hard on us, and we had just lost our way. So there is still the old light, if you will, holding court in the the, far, the, the east. Um, they're still doing communion. They're still doing all that kind of stuff, just like the Church of England dictates. But there's got to be something more. So Whitfield and these others start coming, and they preach these revivals. And it like she said, has this explosive effect in the 1730s and 1740s. So realize what we're having here. This is the second and third generation after the Thirty Years' War. So they sort of started the idea at the end of the 1600s. And then you had Wesley and John Whitfield um, picking up this as the second generation. And now it's being carried forward into America. So 1730s and 1740s, this is sweeping across America. Now you heard it's it's a it's a fire hydrant of movements. It's really not organized. It's very grassroots. You have all sorts of people coming. There's no real structure to a lot of it. It's it's happening. It's being developed. So what today we know as uh, American Baptists, Southern Baptists, they will grow out of this movement. Uh, who was one of the first American preachers they mention? Did you get his name? Jonathan Edwards. Yeah. Yeah, Sinners in the Hand of Angry God, and still a classic in many Baptist quarters. You also have Presbyterians uh, that are coming out of this movement. There will be many Scottish preachers that are coming to the United States as well that have huge followings. So you get that branch as well. And then you have Methodism, which is still much, much larger than we would know it today. It includes Pentecostals. It includes... um, very spirit-filled kind of people, as well as Anglicans. I mean, it's, it's a wide, wide broth. So it, it's having a huge impact on the United States. So think about it. The 1740s and the uh, 1730s and 1740s. What's coming in America in the 1770s?
3: Revolution.
0: Revolution. So where does that come from? What is it, again, that made us so different than Canada? When did Canada revolt from England? Never. They still haven't. They still got the queen on the coin, right? They're they're never going to revolt against her, ever. So what was it about us? One of the things that we've noticed is that when people started to realize, you know what, I don't need an official representative from the Church of England in order to get close to Jesus. They suddenly started to discover, I really don't need this overwhelming governmental structure to control me. Make me pay my taxes, make me do this, control my entry into heaven. Because the government has that power, right? They can deny you communion. They can deny your baptism. People said, there's got to be more. There's got to be a lot more. People began to mix of different strata. One of the things I still saw in England just last week, their society is still very stratified. I mean, they're the rarefied elite that we saw at Wimpleton, right? Um, and granted, I was, I was at Wimpleton, so what the heck am I, am I going gonna to see? But there was the, oh, good morning, governor. I mean, that kind of Englishman that you really... And then there's the working Englishman, and they have the coolest accents ever. But we saw them on the subways and they're, you know, got dirt under their nails and they're that. And then, you know, there's the foreign class, a lot of Indians, a lot of Caribbeans, Africans, and they don't mix. They don't go to restaurants together. It's not like it is in the United States where, you know, things get changed up. That was beginning in Whitfield's sermons. The wealthy aristocrats, We're going to hear a sermon with the poor farmers. Slaves uh, would show up there as well. And all of them, in a sense, were equal. One of the crazy things you still see in England today is that most towns have two churches. We went to Salisbury, which my wife had read several books about uh, this incredible cathedral. At one point, it was the highest cathedral in England. But they had two churches. One was for the aristocrats, and one was for the town folks. Because, you know, the aristocrats have more rights. They're, they're better than you. They go to their own church, and you go to your church. Can you imagine that in the United States? I mean, that's crazy talk. Because of what this pietist revival was doing in America. So I told you, after 1648, there was a reaction to the war, and it was, let's get closer to Jesus. There was another equally powerful reaction that Europe had about, let's get away from Jesus. This is the beginning of the age of reason, or the age of enlightenment. They said religion has only caused destruction. It's causing intolerance, and it's not the way that we should live our lives. We should be rational thinking beings. And this has become a major cultural influence that you still see today in Europe. It is what influenced, in many ways, the French Revolution. Remember, they didn't want the king, they didn't want the state church, they wanted liberty, they wanted freedom. They'll say tolerance uh, for religious divisions. Uh, Many of them will say just, you know, uh, use reason. You You don't need religious dogma. So both of these strains of culture are coming to America from Europe at this time. Amongst the church or the founding fathers of our nation there was a lot of this age of reason Benjamin Franklin Thomas Jefferson uh, very much influenced by this type of thinking that there are natural rights that we have and that people shouldn't stick with old forms of government uh, but we should create something new a republic Uh, this was a very revolutionary spirit like I said at the end of the 1700s this is going to lead to revolution in France the nobles the churchmen, the archbishops will lose their heads because of this, this sense of reason that we're never going to go back to a, a war of uh, the Thirty Years' War. Now, the irony is, of course, what did the French Revolution unleash on Europe? Napoleon. Napoleon. So another incredibly destructive, nasty war. Uh, we tend to review Napoleon as somewhat of a romantic character. He was a dictator butcher um, that killed his way from France all the way to Russia and then back again just for good measure. Uh, hated, caused massive death in Europe. So we're reacting to one war and we lead our way into another. The difference, though was that in England, this pietist movement also had taken root through Wesley. And Wesley doesn't mean to do it, but he's raising, in a sense, a middle class. The Industrial Revolution will intensify a lot of the economic differences between now the industrial elite and the working class. And it'll get explosive in France. It doesn't do so in England. There's certainly a lot of pressure, but it doesn't explode. In the United States, it's going to happen somewhat like France, but somewhat completely different. Because in the United States, I think you have this intertwining of the age of reason and pietism. The structures of our government are very much from the age of reason. That we have the Senate, we have a republic, we have a president. Our architecture, if you look at that time, very much resembles Greek and Roman architecture. We're getting back to this this greater age before Christianity, this reasonable age. But you can't doubt that our soul is Christian. And it's not just Christian, it's pietist. It's burning with this flame to be like Christ. That we're going to be a nation that has rights and responsibilities and all these things. But in our heart, it's Christian. And that's beginning here. And it's not just me that has observed this... um, Let me show you a quick video from uh, James Madison's Institute. Um, Scholars who are secular, so they're not Christian, but even they admit that it was this early movement of Methodism, of Pietism in America that led to the revolution and led to us being different.
3: We think of the 18th century as... As Thomas Paine, for example, called it, the age of reason. And there's good reason to call it the age of reason. It was the age of enlightenment. But we must always remember that it was also the age of awakening. And during particularly the 1740s and 50s, those decades that immediately preceded the American Revolution, there was a a religious phenomenon that swept the colonies from north to south. And uh, it burned brightest during those 40s and 50s. And there were two individuals that we tend to associate with that. George Whitfield, who was an English uh, clergyman, an Anglican in fact, an evangelical Anglican who came to America uh, numerous times to preach and evangelize. And then an American, Jonathan Edwards, who eventually would come to what's now Princeton University to become its president. But those two, Edwards and Whitfield, Baptist
0: was president were sort of the
3: spearheads of the Great Awakening. And this was a movement that cut across all kinds of barriers, if you will. It cut across racial barriers. It cut across class barriers. It cut across geographical barriers and it was a phenomenon that was much reported in the press. In fact, there are contemporary scholars who call the Great Awakening our first national media event, for example. So I think there's a very real sense in which an an incipient sense of nationhood begins to develop during these decades of the Great Awakening. And it does something else, too. It it, uh, creates in Americans a sense that perhaps age-old authorities can and should be undermined. For example, many people during this awakening period um, have what they consider to be an immediate experience of God's grace. They go to hear George Whitfield, for example, a very powerful preacher who loved the common folk and uh, carried around, had built for him a portable pulpit that he would set up in the middle of a field, for example, and thousands, sometimes tens of thousands of people would gather to hear him preaching. And uh, he had to do that because he was refused the pulpits of the established churches, particularly the Anglican churches, of which he was a member. And... Uh, they would stand there in these fields, and they would hear uh, Whitfield preach to them directly from the scriptures uh, of God's grace, and uh, they had experiences, and they, they felt that they were experiencing God afresh directly, and they didn't depend on a, uh, on a clerical class. They didn't depend on uh, an authority structure for that experience. And I think that the popular religiosity of the Great Awakening was translated in subsequent decades, the 1760s and 70s, into the popular constitutionalism that we see Americans articulating, that authorities in the state, perhaps, are not uh, necessary any more than they are in the church. And uh, consent, the doctrine of consent of essentially equal people, and recall our Declaration of Independence declaring that all men are created equal has its roots in that Great Awakening of the 1740s and 50s. I think a case can be made that the popular religiosity of the Great Awakening and its incipient sense of nationalism translate into the popular constitutionalism of the revolutionary period.
0: So it's interesting. Our government, our heart, our soul, who we are, was being influenced by Christianity coming from Europe. You know, we say all these things, a Baptist minister from Princeton, Christianity coming from Europe. My gosh, how much things have changed for us. But it was, it was an incredible day, uh, life-changing. So what about the Methodists? This movement is happening, and if you remember way, way, way back when we talked about George Whitfield and Wesley, what's the difference between the two? Whitfield is probably a better speaker, although Wesley's not bad. People certainly uh, flock to hear him, but old George Whitfield can't organize crap. Um, let's be honest; he, he he has a big revival, everybody, ah! and then God knows what happens. Wesley, on the other hand, is a master at organization. So he's sitting there back in England. And from Wesley's perspective, is Wesley still loyal to the Church of England? Yes. Yes, Absolutely. In fact, throughout all his life, he will never want Methodism to be any more than kind of an Emmaus movement for the church. He does not want to create a competing church. There's only one church for England, and that's the Church of England. But he realizes... He's struggling with this, he realizes things are going on in the colonies. Lots of people are picking up this movement. There's even Methodists, and we'll talk about them in a minute, that are, that are popping up. It's grassroots. There's no real organization to it. It's just happening. And amazing things are, are coming out of it, but there's no control. There's no organization. It's not like it is in England, where people have their parish church that they go to on Sunday, but the other days they're involved in Methodist societies. Also, the revolution is coming, right? It doesn't just happen. There's increased hostility between English and Americans. Things, things are changing. One of the things that the king of England will do is order all Anglican ministers out of the United States. Now, he was doing this to get control back, right? Because, you know, we would fall apart if we didn't have our ministers. Actually, the opposite happened. Everything really good started to, to really percolate. The people didn't need the ministers. And so Wesley is sort of scratching his head. What do I do? I want, I want Methodism to grow in the United States, but I don't want it to go crazy. I don't want it to go off the rails. Wesley still is is an Anglican clergy. He still wants... Clergy involved. He still wants organization. So there is a young disciple of Wesley, and it's sort of a second generation from Wesley, really, I think uh, probably the fourth generation since the Pietist revival. But there was a young man who is kind of representative of this new middle class that Wesley has been raising. Uh, This young man dropped out of school at 12. His parents had been laborers in England. He had gotten a job in the metal industry, which is growing. It's a new industry. It's sort of like Silicon Valley today, but it was a new industry, Uh, so he he, he was making a lot of money, but Wesley gets a hold of him, and by the age of 14, so just two years into working in the factories, he is a Methodist he's given his life to Christ in a in a reborn kind of way his name is Francis Asbury so he's another englishman but a different kind of englishman wesley decides in 1771 i'm going to send francis to the united states with express purpose of trying to bring organization to methodism in america or the pietist movements as much as possible now there's something really great about 18th and 19th century history because almost everybody wrote diaries, right, letters and so it's an incredible source of information people say in these letters and diaries lots of things that really help us capture the person they said about Francis Asbury his preaching, quote, was all zeal and no substance (laughs) Ooh, it's kind of a death knell but what he was excellent at, and probably why he got along with Wesley so well, is that he was a master organizer. So he wasn't, in a sense, a Whitfield; He was a Wesley. So 1771, he comes to the United States. We're just a few years out from the Revolution. The clergy are being removed. He is not clergy. He's not a pastor. Remember he the son of laborers, uh, no real formal education dropped out at twelve, uh, working in the, the the mines or the the steel mills. But what he does have and what made all the difference is this regular discipleship path that Wesley has put them on. Wesley will have you study the Bible. Wesley will have you study the languages of the Bible. Wesley will have you read other things just to be educated. One of the things that Wesley begins to publish are encyclopedias to help educate middle-class people in the larger things of the world. I mean, Wesley is sort of taking his Oxford education and he's applying it in a broad scale. So even though on paper you don't have the great resume, it could still be developed in the church. And so this Francis Asbury is is a phenomenal person, even though, again, doesn't have an Oxford education, is not a pastor, and maybe wasn't the best preacher. He comes to the United States... And his legacy today is really, really hard to capture how important it was. One historian that I was reading said that in the middle, uh, well, towards the end of the 18th century, the late 1700s, if you walked into a bar and Thomas Jefferson and Francis Asbury were having a conversation and you asked the bartender, who are those guys? He would tell you, I don't know who the redhead is, but that other guy with him is Francis Asbury. In 41 years that he was in the United States, we estimated he traveled 300,000 miles by horse. 300,000 miles. And this is before the road system really was developed in revolutionary America. He is sort of the the beginning of the real itinerant horseback preacher. He will preach 16,000 sermons. That's a lot of zeal. Today in Washington, D.C., there is a statue of him that was dedicated by Calvin Coolidge at the beginning of the 1900s, and they call him the American prophet. When he comes to America, there are only a few hundred technical Methodists. By the time that he's done, 41 years later, he'll die in 1815. We will be the largest Protestant denomination in the country. So even though this Pietist movement sort of exploded and there were Presbyterians and Baptists, when Francis Asbury gets here, the spirit is filled with him, Wesley has trained him, he will bring such order, such growth to Methodism, it is in the millions. Uh, we estimate today it was about 1.5 million, which was a huge part of the American population. At one point, they were becoming more Methodists than there were Americans. So we were growing faster than the population. Let me show you another video about the dedication of his statue. It's still in Washington, D.C. today. He's called the 15th Horseman, and he's the only preacher. On
4: October 15, 1924, Calvin Coolidge the 30th President of the United States stood to make a speech at the intersection of Mount Pleasant and 16th Street in our nation's capital. He was there to dedicate a statue of a horse and rider. People called it the 15th Horseman to Washington. The first 14 included military generals, Washington, Sherman. Sheridan, Scott, Grant, Jackson, McClellan, Hancock, Green, McPherson, Logan, Pulaski, and Joan of Arc. The 15th was a preacher on horseback. His name, Francis Asbury. In this inspiring speech, the president remarked of him, in 1771, when he was 26 years old, Responding to a call for volunteers, he was sent by Wesley to America. At that time, it is reported that there were 316 members of his denomination in this country. The prodigious character of his labors is revealed when we remember that he traveled some 6,000 miles each year, or in all, about 270,000 miles Preaching about 15,500 sermons and ordaining more than 4,000 clergymen. Besides, presiding at no less than 224 annual conferences. The highest salary that he received was $80 a year. But he left behind him as one evidence of his labors. Over 200,000 members of his movement. Who shall say where his influence, written upon the immortal souls of men and women, shall end? How many temples of worship dot our landscape? How many institutions of That's learning? Stephen I Seminary, some of them we both lived in that building <laughs> all trace the inspiration of their existence to the sacrifice and service of this lone circuit rider. He is entitled to rank as one of the builders of our nation. Today, at the quiet corner of Mount Pleasant and 16th, the silent statue still speaks. The base of the statue reads a short inscription, some of the letters of which are now gone. That's disgraceful. It reads, the prophet of the long road. It's a prophetic sign for good. us who would take up this mantle.
0: And lay claim to this holy cow now i said was he clergy no no so what did he die as what are they calling him a prophet. a prophet and a bishop when he got to the united states he was just a missionary he was just a lay person that was sent he'll be here through the revolutionary war and all of the struggles After the Revolutionary War, Wesley, back in England, asked the head of the Church of England to please send pastors, clergy, back to the colonies. They may not be part of the the United Kingdom, but they still need God. And because, again, the Church of England was part of the government, the king said, absolutely not. We're not going to help these people at all. So Wesley is stuck. He knows they need Jesus, but the structure that he's been trying to reform form all these years is not going to send them clergy so much like uh, samuel in the, the bible when the people said we want a king wesley is stuck here and he, th- he thinks well I, I've, I've got to make do of this they need clergy and so he will send another huge influential figure but really for the next generation a guy named thomas coke who will be the inventor of a great medicinal drink called coca cola? No, I think yeah there 's Coke yeah. again, the letters reveal so much. Wesley called him the flea <laughs> that was wesley 's nickname for Coke. Um, he was five foot one, so Wesley was actually taller than him. And remember Wesley was a little bitty guy, and this is a little bitty bitty guy, and he has a weight problem. Um, so he's very short and very round. And that's probably the origin of the flea um, name. <laughs> so I like Wesley for calling him the flea. But O'Coke over here is uh, clergy. He was of Church of England, although he got thrown out because he was too Methodist. He was too pietist. And so you have a defrocked minister, but he was at least trained as a minister. And Wesley's like, well, I'm going to send you. I'm going to ordain you. I'm going to do it. And this was hard for Wesley because he didn't have the authority. He, in the Church of England, he was not a, the archbishop. He didn't have the legal authority to do this. But Wesley said, I'm going to make you a bishop, Flea, and you're going to go to America, and you're going to make... And I I should correct myself. Wesley did not use the word bishop. He he didn't want to because he didn't have that authority. So he used the word superintendent. So I'm going to send you, Coke to the United States, and you're going to make Francis Asbury the superintendent. But what we did in America is we changed it. Superintendent and bishop basically mean the same thing. So we changed it, upset Wesley, but... Still, the the substance of what was going on is that we're creating now the seeds for a new church. That you have the power to ordain clergy, that you have the power to serve communion, is really a new church. So he doesn't do it in England, but he's going to do it in the United States. And as we said, Methodism will just absolutely explode under... Asbury's leadership, the organization he provides. And I want to start next week by really showing you how the grassroots helped this along. It wasn't just Asbury. Asbury is organizing what's happening, but people are doing it on their own all over the place. And I think that's a part of Methodism that we don't need to forget that we were not created from above, but we sort of grew up to meet what was happening from the elites in England. I've covered a lot of history today and a lot of people. Thanks for hanging with me. I'm going to stop. Do we have any questions? Yes, ma'am. Um, so
2: when was it called Methodism? So you're saying he didn't want to leave the church of England. Right. But he, was it Methodism, what he was
0: building. Yes. In England, they'll call it the Methodist Society, but it was not a church.
2: So it was a society apart from...
0: Right. Are you familiar with like Young Life? So, something like that. It's an organization that comes alongside the church, it exists outside of the church, but it's not meant to replace the church. So, that's what we were. We were the Saturday through uh, Friday part of the church, and then Sunday you still went to church.
2: So, but it was his idea to then send Cope and Asbury in order to start.
0: Yep. That was 1880. Right? Uh, Seventeen, yeah, yeah. So after the Revolutionary War, and really, Wesley says because the Church of England won't send anybody. I mean, they're still throwing a fit. So, yes, sir. Oh, I, I can figure that out. A good number, a goodly number. Um, it. It's it's a little bit towards the beginning of their really explosion, um, but there there's still many. And certainly pietists, there are many um, in that movement. So it's that combination, again, that's Age of Reason, Enlightenment, but also Great Awakening. And to me, that's the best of America. I mean, we have good governmental structures, and we have a soul of a Christian. That's what makes it work. So...
4: Can you expand on the biases in the more? I mean, the Moravian, German Moravian?
0: Yes, Moravians. Um, about their influence in America or is what? Who they were and what they. Yeah, they're a really fascinating group that began actually in Austria. And if you remember, after the the Thirty Years' War, there was a strong push to get... If you're a Catholic country, force the Protestants out. If you're a Protestant country, force the Catholics out. We're going to be all one or the other. And the Moravians were, unfortunately, Protestants living in Catholic Austria. And so they were forced out of Austria. They end up going in Germany, and there was a German noble by the name of Count Zinzendorf... And he had gone to the University of Halle, which is a pietist school. So it was a school started by that first generation of Germans that wanted to change the world. So Zinzendorf goes there. He is, his life is so changed, he gives up his role in the Austrian government. And he says, I will take all of these refugees, and they can live on my ancestral land. My, because he was a noble. He had huge tracts of land. So this massive group of people. And talk about a mission project. I mean, please everybody come help us this Saturday to go to High Sky. Again, this is part of our pietism, right? We go out and we do good. We build schools. We build orphanages. We really help people. But... The way Zinzendorf did it is he brought the whole mission field into his house. I mean, he settled these people on his estates. And there was such a fervent fire amongst these people that they started sending out missionaries, even though they had been refugees. So they literally are the first Christian missionaries, uh, evangelical, that we know of. They go to America, they go to the Far East, they go to Japan, they go to China, they go to Africa. And they're just... German peasants, really. Um, so that's, that's the quick story. Um, if we have time, I can sort of walk you through the pietism development of uh, German-speaking America. And it, it was huge as well. Um, we're really doing the East Coast, and this would be more the interior. And, of course, we know... Where else do the Germans come? Texas, Texas. yeah. And in New Bronzeville, uh, Fredericksburg, and all that area, they're all pietists. So... It's an interesting history. The United Methodist Church tried to bring these two branches together, right? So we were the Evangelical United Brethren and the Methodist Church Episcopal brought together. But it didn't really work. But good question. All right. One more
2: question. Sure. So the Methodism that you're talking about before Asbury comes over was started from Wesley when he was in Georgia?
0: No. How did it begin? It was just individuals, and I'll I'll show you a little story about the Straw Bridges. Uh, They're just farmers that had read about what Wesley was doing. And so they decided, uh, we're going to do it at our kitchen table. And we still have their kitchen table today um, where they led people uh, to come. And they were just trying to mimic what Wesley was doing. So one of their friends came and you know, they preached and they said, hey, we should be Christians. We should do good and all this stuff. And the guy goes, yeah, you're, you're right. And he goes home and he frees all of his slaves just because of what the Strawbridges had said to him. And then shortly after that, one of the slaves comes and sits down at the table and they're like, well, what do we do? I said, we make him part of the group. So one of the first bishops of America is this black slave that sat down at the table. So, I mean, it's amazing what Methodism did in its early days. But it did get a little, it upset Wesley. Like the Strawbridges serve communion, and they try to ordain people, and they're not clergy. And Wesley's like, no, 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 you can't do that. But there's nobody here in America to do it, so it'll be a little back and forth. And we'll go through that. It ends up fine. Francis Asbury knows the straw bridges, and they don't get along, but they work together. So it's there's always the details of people, but we were really the foundation of America or the heart of of this country. So good stuff. All right. Well let's pray. Gracious Lord. Thank you that through our own crisis we're given the opportunity to look back at our origins. To see a bishop, O Lord, that literally rode himself to death. A man that never married. A man that made himself sick writing, preaching sermons so the church would grow. Father, today we look at some of our church leaders and we don't see that. We don't see them. Help us to recover some of the Spirit as we go forward. To understand that your work has never been limited to what pastors can do. Whether it was in Germany or in England or here in the United States, it's about what your Holy Spirit can do touching people's lives. No matter their education or their standing, it's simply our commitment, our zeal, our passion for you. You can teach us what we need to know as long as our heart is in the right place. So help us make sure our heart is right with you, that our flame of faith doesn't just sit on a wall as an icon, but as a reflection of what really goes on within us. Give us the same strength, O Lord, to continue to witness, to travel all around and tell people about Christ. And, O Lord, we pray for our nation, how we were blessed, how we were given such an incredible birth, how we've walked away from it help us O lord to rekindle that time of the great awakening when our forms of government may have been the best of the time but our soul connected to you and your very ancient truths help us to be a christian nation in the depths of our heart it's in your son's holy and precious name we pray amen thank you all Right? Hey.